As I said earlier, we are in this worship series on the Acts of the Apostles, and today we're looking at Acts chapter 17, this incredible story of Paul in Athens, Greece. He's on his second missionary journey traveling around the Mediterranean, and now Paul has made his way to Athens. So I invite you to open up your Bibles wherever you are to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to be reading verses 16 through 34. It's a bit of a long text. So settle in wherever you may be and open up your app on your phone or your Bible, wherever you are, and we will follow along with the scripture from the Acts of the Apostles. Listen now to God's word. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath, and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me in a word of prayer. 
Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. When Paul ends up spending some time in Athens, he's waiting there for a few of his companions to show up. He is deeply distressed, as the scripture says, because he sees as he walks around Athens all these statues that are devoted to different gods. And he notices that there's this immense amount of idolatry around him. Paul is a Jewish person by nature and a Roman citizen. And so he's really formed by this perspective of idolatry, of misplaced worship, of worshiping things that are not God. So this is an anxiety of Paul's, and you can feel it in the scripture as you hear this story. He's deeply distressed, and he is nervous and worried about all these statues that are erected around Athens. He's so anxious about it that not only do they have statues for the polytheistic gods that Athens believes in, but they even have statues to the unknown god that they're worried about. They're concerned that they may have missed someone. They have all these gods lined up in statues, but they missed one. So they're nervous and they're worried about it, the Athenians, and they even erect statues and art to reflect that so that they make sure they cover their bases, that they've worshipped everybody, that they got all their bases covered, they've, they've erected statues for all the gods. The Athenians have done this. And Paul finds himself deeply distressed. And in the midst of his distress, he begins to communicate. And for what many Christians for thousands of years has looked at this as an opportunity to reflect on what does Christian uh, attitude around speaking about who God is in the midst of a polytheistic culture. Oftentimes people have looked at this text to, to see how ought we interact with a culture that has uh, polytheism as a part of it. And it's really interesting when we begin to look at the speech. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's been all sorts of speeches throughout the Acts of the Apostles now. Stephen had a speech, and it ended a certain kind of way. Peter had some speeches. It ended a certain kind of way. Paul has a variety of speeches that take place through Acts. And in this particular speech now, Paul is speaking to Athens. And it's really interesting as we begin to just parse it out a little bit and we look at it. What I think is interesting is that Paul begins in this very gracious space with speaking to the Athenians. Paul creates common ground with them. He actually says, I see that you're very religious. There's a common ground here. And the reason why there's a common ground is because the one who you think is unknown is actually knowable. And that one who is knowable, this God, has made all people in all things and has even made this earth. This is God the creator. And this God has put inside of every human this longing to reach after, to grope after God in everything we do. And so even though you may not worship that one yet, the reason why you have this groping, this longing to worship even an unknown God is because God has made you this way. God's made you this way. Paul creates this common ground. And then even in the midst of the common ground, it's fascinating. Paul uses the poetry of Athens itself to communicate about this groping, of this longing to reach after God. That quote that people love, that in him we live and move and have our being, that quote is probably from a poet in Athens. And there was another poet that spoke, and Paul quotes another poet from Athens. So it's interesting. At the one hand, he's distressed by their idolatry, but at the same time, he uses it to create common ground to speak to the Athenians. And as he makes his way through his speech, after the common ground, then he moves sort of into a distinctive space, 
about the speech that he wants to share with them. Once he makes his way up onto the Areopagus, which is like the city center, this is the, the space for the parliamentary, this is the city, the center of the government of the, of the city of Athens. This is where the philosophers come to debate and people come to have their conversations. And when he's there and he moves into his distinctive speech for the Athenians, Paul then says to them, God commands all people everywhere to repent. A day is coming when someone will judge you. Sort of like now that you know this information, now that you know this information, God commands you to repent. God commands all people to repent everywhere. This text is not necessarily met with incredible results, as we've seen in other uh, speeches throughout the Acts of the Apostles, in that some people follow Paul, some people don't. Uh, some people say, I'm going to ask you some more questions later as they hear him talk about the resurrection. They're sort of worried about this distinctiveness. So there's different camps as they, re as they hear Paul's speech. But Paul stays who he is, and he speaks in this manner. And I think there perhaps is a way for us that we can relate to the scripture too. Now, we live in a very religious culture, I think, in, in a certain kind of way. We don't have a polytheistic culture the way that Athens did. Athens, as you know, in its mythology, probably had many gods that they worshipped. I wouldn't say that we necessarily have a polytheistic culture in that same kind of way, but I think there's a way in which we are still a very religious people, a religious people in the sense of groping after something. Do you know what I mean? I, I feel that in the life that we live here. There's a groping after something, a longing for something that takes place in each and every one of us. I've noticed this in the past few weeks as Major League Baseball returned. And for all the people in this church and in this community that love the Giants, it's like, oh, they finally got to reach after something and hold on to something good and real. <laughs> they missed it. I got onto a session call the other night, and a couple of people were watching the baseball game, and they had to, like, turn it off, or maybe they glanced at it back and forth. I'm not sure. <laughs> but they're so excited. They're groping after something. And that groping after, that devoting themselves to something, even a thing like watching baseball or, or fandom, like that can feel religious in a way. That kind of devotion, setting our hearts on something, and excitement, putting our, putting our emotions, our well-being on the line for whatever is about to take place in front of us. Sports can feel like that. There's all sorts of things that can feel like that, that take on this kind of groping that we long for. So I think in a way, uh, even though this is technically one of the least churched places in the entire country, the San Francisco Bay Area, I still think there's a sense in which we live in a world that's very religious. We grope after something. We long after this unknown God. And so I think there's some parallels here for us in Athens and in the San Francisco Bay Area as well. And here's where I think is very interesting in this text. When Paul gets to his distinctives and he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands all people everywhere to repent. I actually think there's tremendous good news in this sentence. And I want to stick with this idea for a little while, that God commands all people everywhere to repent. I think it's really good news, except that in our tradition, we have conflated at times confession and repentance. Like at this moment when Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent, yeah, some people walk away. They go, I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. Or some people say, I want to learn more about the resurrection. And some people say, I'm on board. I want to follow you. But no doubt you can tell that when he starts to speak of repentance and resurrection, some people don't want to be a part of it. 
And I think in our tradition, we've conflated these ideas, confession and repentance. What I mean by that is confession is when we look at our lives and we look at the lives around us and our world around us and we see sin and we confess that to God. We say to God, yes, God, I've wronged, I've erred, forgive me my sins. That's confession. We ask for confessions from God. But repentance is not just a looking at sin, but it is a turning towards something new. It's moving in a new direction. The Greek word for repentance is metanoe. It means the change of our minds, changing our minds. I don't know if you're familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, but in cognitive behavioral therapy, that version of psychotherapy, the whole model of that therapy idea is that if you change your thoughts, you change your behaviors, and then you change your feelings. Change your thoughts, behaviors, and then your feelings. In a sense, I think that's what repentance is. God commands us to change our thoughts, and then we might end up changing our behaviors, and we might end up changing our feelings as a result of that. I think there's really good news here with this idea of God commanding all people everywhere to repent. It's not so much confession, like looking at our sin and focusing on it, staying focused on it, but it's about seeing a future vision of turning towards something new that God has for us. I think the best way this is made known in Acts of the Apostles is in the chapter before in Acts 16. Right after in the story I told you last week about Lydia converting to Christianity and her getting baptized and Paul staying with her in Philippi, then there's this next scene that erupts right after that, which is that Paul keeps going to the place of prayer in Philippi, and along the way he meets a woman who has a spirit inside of her, a demonic spirit inside of her, and she's a slave. There's people who are lords over her, and they use the spirit that's at work in her to create money and income. She tells, I don't know, some kind of strange things, and she is able to make money as a result of that and gives it to her lords and her masters. And Paul one day is just sort of fed up with this on his way to the prayer, and he casts this spirit out of her by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he does this, the whole city erupts in this massive fervor when Paul does this. Because this woman's no able longer to fulfill her duties to her masters, she's been freed, not just from the spirit herself, but she's actually been freed from being a slave too as a result of this transformation that happens in her life. Those masters are no longer lord over her, and the whole city erupts in this kind of like incredible fervor. They drag Paul and Silas to jail. They flog them. They put them in prison. These people are so frustrated and mad at Paul and Silas now. And then they're in jail. And their jailer is right there with them. And then the Holy Spirit does something even more amazing besides just removing the spirit from this woman, but instead opens up the jails. And Paul and Silas are set free from their imprisonment. And then the jailer sees all of this unfold in front of them, and he himself wants to become a Christian, to be baptized. It's this incredible moment, frankly, where this woman who was a slave, who was under oppression of her lords and her masters, then the Spirit frees her from this, and now she is set free. She's liberated from that way of life that she used to be in. This jailer who was flogging and imprisoning people for the sake of these other people, now he is set free from that way of life and can live into a new existence. I think this is a story that captures for us this idea of repentance. Repentance. 
right? They get to live into a new way of life now. There's a new life that God has for them. It's not the old life of being a slave or being the jailer, but there's a new way of life that's filled with liberation from that previous way of life, that's filled with love, that's filled with life. This is the change of mind of repentance. I think that Paul has in mind when he says this. When God commands all people everywhere to repent, it's not to just focus on the past, but to say, there is this future that God has for you if you want to believe in these particulars. There is a future that God has for you when you believe in these things. I've become really fond of this phrase um, from one of my friends, Travis. He's a professor of theology in Missouri. We went to seminary together, and he wrote a book last year, and I love this book, and and he has sort of decided to use certain kind of language around the triune God. And he likes to say that the triune God is about life, love, and liberation. That when you look at the scriptures, this is what you see. You see a God who wants us to have life, to experience love, and to be set free. And in that way, I think we even see in this story a bit of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is a really important scripture. This is when the people of God receive all the commands and decrees of what it looks like to live into faithfulness with God. And in this text, it says that God gives all these commands and all these decrees so that you have life and live long. It's not that God gives you these commands and these decrees so that you could look back and go, oh, these are all the ways that I erred. These are the ways that I've stumbled in my faith and my journey. No, no, no. God gives you these commands and these decrees so that you might have life so you might have life, and you might move into a new way of life, love, and liberation, this future that God has. God commands all people everywhere to repent, to change, to move their mindset, and then maybe even move their whole behavior and their whole devotion towards this future that God would have for you. God commands all people everywhere to repent. I think these ideas are um, helpful for me, at least, in this season in life. Um, I don't know about you, but one of the things I've been sort of flirting around with in my brain, and I wonder if you have been too, is, is longing to go back. <laughs> There's a lot of times where I keep thinking, ah, oh, I, just, I just wish it were February. <laughs> it's not February. It's August now. And I even listened to one of my previous sermons uh, back in April when this whole thing started with the pandemic, and I and in one of my sermons, I said, the next, you know, next few weeks, the next month or two are going to be a little bit hard. I mean, we simply did not know in April that this is where we would be in August. We just didn't know that. And I find myself now, like, longing to go back, longing to go back a little bit. I wonder if you experience that, too, in the midst of your life right now. And I've had to just remind myself all week, and I think that's why this text is so refreshing for us from Acts 17, about this change of mindset, change of metanoia repent, moving forward, moving forward into the new future that God has for us. I think it's really helpful for us because, um, well, as a slight anecdote, when I was doing college ministry many years ago, I would do men's ministry with the young men at the University of Washington. And I'm sure that 40% of my conversations with them was about dating and dating life and dating culture. And, and what should I do with this relationship that I have? And this happened all the time. Guys would come up to me months after a relationship had been over, and they go, hey, Kurt, what do you think if I should ask this person back out on another date again? And I'm like, no, don't do that. 
you somehow don't remember, but I remember five months ago, you were miserable. It was, it was terrible. You were so stressed and distraught. You could barely get yourself up to go to class because of that relationship. Like, you were in pain. I think there's some part of humans that like to, after a lengthy period of time, I don't know what it is, but we forget all the bad stuff sometimes. We forget the hard things. We forget these things, like those guys in those relationships, and they just remember the good stuff, and they think, oh, yeah, that was such a good thing. You know, it's a good thing we have friends in our lives to be like, no, 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 it wasn't such a good thing. And I think that's true for us too right now as we reflect on wishing it might be February or January or even a year ago or two years ago. Yeah, obviously there was good things, um, but this is where we are right now. And this is why I think this can be a really good word for us in our faith journey and also what we might want to be in our world in San Francisco Bay Area, in this world that's, that's very religious, where people are groping after something. People might grope after the past, but I think brothers and sisters in Christ, when we have our imagination, our art, our poetry, our music set on this beautiful future that God has for us of life, love, and liberation, that's something we can latch onto. That's something we can hold onto. That's something we can see a new future of, and we can experience it right now in this place, in our community, and in our life. There is a future. There is a turning towards something. There always has been in God. There's always hope. There was hope in Acts 17, and there's hope right now that we can turn towards this new thing that God has for us. God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn towards this new thing that God has for you. Speaking of something in the past, I saw and I remembered that two years ago, it was this Sunday that uh, Ben McBride came and preached at our church. I'm not sure if you remember that. Ben is a pastor from Oakland, and he gave a great sermon, and we had this lecture downstairs in, in Fireside Room, and there was 60 people there, and people were having hot dogs outside. So maybe, maybe I do miss the good old days a little bit. So again, that's my piece. I'm owning that. But I was reflecting on that, remembering about Ben, and then as I was thinking about that, I saw Ben on uh, Facebook this past week, and he and our friends, we, keep, we, we catch up every once in a while, and I saw a story that uh, his brother, Michael, is also a pastor. And for those of you who don't know, Ben and Michael are African-American pastors in Oakland. And uh, Michael's church is called The Way, the Christian Center in Oakland. And it's been around for 15 years. And it's like, a, it's a booming church. Really good things are happening there. But earlier this week, uh, sometime in the middle of the night, some people put some flammable things inside of the trash cans outside of their church building and pushed them up right next to the church building and lit them on fire. And they tried to burn down the whole building. They were unsuccessful. Apparently, the fire department got there soon. Some neighbors got there soon and were able to put out the fire, and the church didn't burn down. Now, the church had been there and been doing fine for 15 years, but Michael and their board there decided to put up a sign on the front of the church. It's a predominantly African-American church, and they put up the sign, Black Lives Matter, on the front of it. And after they put up that sign, they received this vandalism. Somebody tried to burn down their church. There was an arson. And obviously, this kind of terror was horrible in their community, and they're super sad about it. And the community responded, and it's all going to be okay. They're going to get the structure put back together. But as you can imagine, there's so many layers to terror that exist in that reality. And they had a press conference, 
and Ben was there talking about the church and the community and sharing about it. And in the midst of this horrifying terror that was taking place right behind him, which you saw the burnt part of the structure of the building and these trash cans that were melted and lit on fire, Ben pointed to something else that was right next to him. The very first thing he said was, friends, I want you to see behind me is a gathering of a coalition of interfaith leaders from Oakland. Pastors, priests, imams, rabbis, these are our friends. These are our friends, and they come here to give witness today to a new way of love gathered together in the midst of diverse people. And it blew me away. It blew me away. I thought it was such a beautiful thing and a beautiful witness. Now, Ben went on to say some very particular things about what he felt and what he thought about what happened in the midst of that. And that's much like Paul. He went to the particulars about what he believes. But in the midst of that, there was this participation that was taking place in the midst of a diversity of religiosity. Some people are going to get on board with where you are. Some people may not. They might have more questions about the resurrection. Some people may want nothing to do with it. But that kind of groping after that we all experience in our life, I think there's a way that we can participate and wrap our minds around this idea of seeing life, love, and liberation as our future together as a people, our future together. And that's exactly what Ben was pointing to with this coalition of interfaith leaders that were gathered that day. That was a beautiful image. And perhaps instead of like the Athenians when they set their minds and their imagination and their art onto these objects and statues and different things that aren't really served by God, we can set our imagination and our hearts and our minds on this new future, repenting, changing our mindset towards all that God has for us, this new thing that God is doing right in the midst of our life. God gives us decrees and laws so that we might live and love and that we might experience freedom in Christ. So brothers and sisters, wherever you are this day, that's my prayer for you, that you would, you would know this repentance, you would see this path forward for you, for our church, and for our larger community in San Francisco. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, thanks for this word from the Apostle Paul in Athens to that really you command us to repent. You command us to change. You command us to move in a new direction. Lord, I hope we hear the grace in that. We hear the freedom in that. That it's not so much a looking back on all the negative things, which there's plenty of in our life. There's plenty of negative things going on in our life. That, that stuff is all real. It's so true. But help us trust and latch onto, and not just grope for, but actually grab onto the future that you have for us, God. Help us see that in our life and help us live into that all the more as the people who devote themselves to you entirely. We love you, Lord. Help us to live into this, to this word of repentance, to this word of following after you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.